Welcome to Medspectives, the podcast about health professionals, the stories of their practice, and their diverse perspectives into the world around us. I'm your host, Arvind Rajan, and on today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Claudia Gutler, a trauma surgeon at Vita Medical Center. Trauma surgery is a field that we hear a lot about in movies and TV shows, and I wanted to talk to Dr. Gutler about what the realities of the field are. Dr. Gutler and I chat about this and the field of trauma surgery in broad, and she offers insight into her experiences in the career, including a couple cases as well as how COVID has affected trauma surgery. I hope you enjoy. Hey everyone, so today we have Dr. Gutler. Um, She is a trauma surgeon at Biden Medical Center. How are you doing today, Dr. Gutler? I'm doing great, thank you. Awesome, Uh, thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. Um, Just to start off, um, with the scene of trauma surgery, right? We see a lot of this particular field of medicine in movies and TV shows and things like that. And I feel like sometimes it can become really like dramatized um, and maybe very similar to what it actually is, but maybe different. Um, So what is your experience working in in trauma surgery? What, how would you paint the scene? um, And what would your like day to day look like? So the stuff you see on TV is actually reasonably accurate. What's different is that it's very compressed. So a dramatic trauma scene that takes place in an hour show happens maybe once a week and the vast majority of the trauma patients we take care of are much less exciting than that. So for example, I'm on call today. When we're finished talking, I will get my pagers and get sign out for my colleagues and I'll be running the trauma center for the day. But what that means is a lot of standing around waiting. We will, since it's a Wednesday, it's not a particularly busy day, though it's the summer and it's warm out, so people will be out doing dumb things. It, it, we are likely to see probably 10 to 12 patients over the course of the day, and that will range anywhere from really boring things like older folks who fell down and broke their wrist and have some blood in their head, which is still life-threatening but not uh, television exciting to car crashes where folks have multi-system injury, brain injury, spine injury, liver injury, orthopedic injury, et cetera, to the stuff that you see on TV, which is gonna be mostly the violent crime. So we have more than our fair share of violent crime in this region, which for the patients is bad, but for trauma surgeons is good. So we typically get one or two gunshot wounds or stabbings in a 24-hour period. Most of those patients are not exciting like TV and don't need an operation, but some of them will be. And I think most of us who go into trauma do it because we are secretly adrenaline junkies and want to do those exciting cases. So there is the hope that I will get an exciting case tonight, though I will probably get mostly Um, older folks that fell over or people that are still doing silly things with chainsaws and cleanup from the hurricane. Interesting. Um, And like you said, it's, you can never, you never know what's going to come through those doors. And I think, um, you know, throughout those years that you've worked in trauma surgery, what do you think has been an example of one of those cases that you found like particularly really exciting for yourself and um, really sticks out to you as a um, trauma surgeon? I remember a patient from probably 15 years ago who was downtown during Halloween and walked into a bar and said, I've been shot in the chest, Uh, to which they said, yeah, that's very funny, because they thought it was 
costume, but he had actually been shot in the chest and through his heart. Um, because downtown is close to us, unlike a lot of our patients, he got to us very quickly. We were able to operate on him. So that means I get to do open heart surgery um, and we're able to save his life and he did very well. So those are always the exciting cases. We have much more difficult cases than those. The folks who are in a bad car crash and have a brain injury and break their neck and destroy their chest wall and have liver injuries and orthopedic injuries, um, those are actually reasonably common and we usually have a couple of those in the ICU at any one time because those patients will stay in our hospital for sometimes months at a time getting through dozens of operations and hopefully recovering enough to go to a rehab center. Those are a lot more work and a lot more frustrating but hopefully we will see those folks back in our clinic and that then becomes exciting because after all of that work we have saved somebody who can get back into society. Right. And I guess that feeling of seeing someone all the way through, you know, seeing when they came in with their injury and then seeing them come out, come, like the feeling that you did that for them is, is quite fulfilling. It is very fulfilling. The, the gunshot wound's more fun because you get immediate feedback. You know, at the end of the day, you've saved somebody's life. The longer term care ones take a lot more effort and emotional energy, but are also extraordinarily satisfying when you see them back in a clinic. And like you were talking a little bit earlier, so um, with these patients that are coming in, like you know, like you said, a car crash, and you have like um, brain problems that happen, you have orthopedic um, issues that happen. How do you know all these different types of issues um, when they come in? Are there different you know professionals that see to see to these different needs, or are you kind of the overseer of all of it, and then direct them somewhere else if it, if they need like additional, or how does that? process work. So I tell the patients frequently that the trauma surgeon is the conductor at the three ring circus. So it is our circus, it is our monkeys, and we have to try and keep them all in control. Um, the patient's physiology dictates how much they're allowed to have done. So if the patient's blood pressure is low or if their labs are all deranged, that is not a patient who should go to the operating room. And in our heads, we have an algorithm for each of the injuries, but frequently those algorithms collide. So the brain injury says you should give more fluid, the lung injury says you should give less fluid, the orthopedic injury says you should go to the operating room now, the liver injury says you're too unstable to go to the operating room. So it's our job to balance all of those things and to essentially hold our consultants in check. Each one of the specialists for each one of those disease processes wants to do his or her job and sometimes we have to not let them. So an orthopedist wants to fix a pelvis but may kill the patient trying to fix the pelvis so we have to hold them off if the patient's not ready to go. So a lot of our work is actually done organizing other things. The most useful tool that I carry on a daily basis is the battery operated telephone so that I'm on the phone with neurosurgery saying, can you come see this patient? And telling orthopedics, I need you to come see the patient, but no, you can't take them to the operating room. And so we do a lot of arranging of complex care pathways. And we're the one service that manages the entire patient and tries to organize the specialists that want to have their piece of the patient. Wow, and that must be a very like um, 
demanding job in the sense that you have to coordinate with so many different people you know you have to have a whole body perspective of that patient to, to see like what is the most immediate need um, I think that kind of lends into like how when in like you said earlier it was a very high adrenaline situation when you're you know when you're in these certain cases how does the teamwork aspect work right so if you have multiple people in the room are there like multiple trauma surgeons like who else is in the room and how do they all um, how do you all work efficiently together when there's sudden, like such a demanding um, task in front of you? So surgery in general and trauma very much so is a team sport. You can't do it yourself. The trauma surgeon or the surgeon, if we're talking about an operation, is supposed to be captain of the ship, but the team running a trauma is multidisciplinary and everybody has a, an assigned job and knows their job. So a routine trauma activation will have an emergency medicine attending and resident at the head of the bed to manage an airway if we need to have the patient get a breathing tube put in. We will have usually two surgery residents or an emergency medicine and a surgery resident looking over the patient, diagnosing the injuries and doing emergency treatment. So if somebody needs a chest tube, if somebody needs a central line because IV access is difficult, those folks will do that. There is a senior level surgeon, whether it's a surgery attending um, for trauma or one of the fellows at the end of the bed, coordinating all of those people and making sure that everybody is not only doing their job, but that the care of the patient is moving forward. Uh, we will have usually three nurses in the room or two nurses and a phlebotomy tech to get IV access, to give medications. There's usually a pharmacist in the room. There's usually x-ray standing by. There is a secretary taking orders down. And there's usually a chaplain standing by to help manage family and to manage the patient if the patient's having an emotional crisis. So a team of typically six to 10 people for each patient. So the patients get really comprehensive care and really rapid care. Then if you need extra folks, like if the patient's pregnant, you need to call in obstetrics. If the patient's got broken extremities, you need to call in orthopedics. If they have a brain or spine injury, neurosurgery. Um, those are our common consultants because most of the other things are managed by us. That team works very well together because we've practiced it. Everybody knows what their job is. The person at the foot of the bed, usually the trauma surgeon, is making sure that the patient's responding, that things are moving forward. If you imagine being the resident at the bedside and your job is to actually examine the patient, as you're listening to lungs, you may not be noticing that there's an open ankle fracture that's bleeding. Um, or if you're distracted by the open ankle fracture, you may not notice that the patient doesn't have breath sounds on the left. So that's the job of the trauma attending to make sure that all of those things are being addressed in the order that they need to be addressed. So it's a very big multitasking um, specialty, right? You have to keep all of these different aspects of the patient in mind at the same time. Um, sort of yes and sort of no. I have to keep all of those things in mind, but I've got a bunch of people that know their job. Um, if you look at it sort of like the hostess at a restaurant, 
the hostess at the restaurant has to keep track of which tables are being seated and do each of the waitresses have the right number of um, customers and whose turn is it next. But then the waitress's job is to know what drinks everybody has and the busboy's job is to clear the table. So the manager oversees all of that, um, but the manager doesn't know which waitress is up next for the next seating. Uh, so it's very much like that. I think every job specialty has its team members that do their important jobs and somebody oversees everything and I just happen to be the, the manager of the restaurant. Interesting. I like, I like the analogy. Very, uh, very illustrative of like how the dynamic actually works. Um, and so with the moving on to the pandemic itself, um, so how has the field of trauma surgery been tested um, by the pandemic? So I think there's a number of places that we interact in the pandemic. The first is in the emergency department, we are being exposed to unknown patients. So if you get shot or stabbed or in a car crash and you roll through our doors, we have no idea if you've been COVID exposed. We have no idea if you have symptoms. So we have to treat all of those patients as though they are COVID positive. So it takes us a little longer to get dressed in the appropriate gear. We have to yell louder to get through our masks. The patients are higher risk to us coming in with potential COVID. Um, using other infectious pandemics as an example, AIDS was a big deal when I was a medical student because it was still a relatively uh, poorly understood disease and patients were coming in with end-stage AIDS and uh, many patients who had HIV didn't know that they had HIV so we were dealing with that similarly and ex expecting that everyone is HIV positive. We still expect that everyone is HIV positive but the risk from an HIV patient is in many ways much lower. I wear gloves when I'm going to put my hands in blood and I can see the blood in advance. So I have the opportunity to protect myself. Whereas with the COVID patients, a lot of these patients are asymptomatic. They can potentially infect a 30 foot radius with uh, droplets and they haven't necessarily been taking precautions out in the world. If you are worried about catching HIV, you know to wear a condom and not to share needles, whereas if you're worried about catching COVID, you should be wearing a mask, but you have only to walk outside to see that lots and lots of people are not practicing prophylactic protection. So I think if, if, you, would, if you would plan on wearing a condom in an unknown sexual encounter, hopefully you would plan on wearing a mask in an unknown grocery store encounter, because um, it's potentially just as lethal and much more easily spread. Right. And I think that like how you illustrated with the blood, like that's the reason I guess people feel so like, or the people that don't wear masks don't wear them because, you know, they can't see it and they can't, they won't believe it because they don't see it. Um, Everybody thinks that diseases are going to affect other people. Everybody thinks that car crashes are going to affect other people. The reason to wear your mask during the COVID is not just to protect yourself, but to protect everyone. And let's say you're not gonna get it. Let's say it is actually a great conspiracy and it doesn't exist. Wearing a mask isn't gonna hurt you. You are expected to wear a shirt and shoes when you go into a store. 
and that is not even for medical reasons that's been decided that that's a decency issue so why is wearing a mask any more arduous than putting on a shirt and putting on shoes um it's annoying i get it i don't like wearing it either um i i'm probably more used to it than most people because i wear it for large portions of my job anyway but it's pretty darn harmless and it may or may not save your life right so like you said, like better safe than sorry, right? Like it's not a big addition to make and it has big implications of what it can actually do. You could even design a mask with a big political statement across it so that you're getting your point across but still wearing the mask. Um, I have not personally taken care of a COVID patient that has died. I have seen COVID patients here die. I have taken care of COVID patients who have not died. Um, for anyone who has been unaffected, I'm glad for them, but this is real and people are dying. And I would hope that people at least take it seriously, and if not taking it seriously, at least just give in and wear a mask. Right. And yeah, that personal connection, right? Anyone that's seen someone who've gotten it, then they take it seriously. Like you said, you, you see it on the job. Um, and it, it just puts it in perspective, like seeing when you see an actual person, you know, um, get infected or pass away from it, you feel you feel more like it's more of a threat. And I think that that's the problem with some people that I guess they haven't seen it. So they, they just don't believe it. And that's a really big concern. Um, and that's something that I wish like, you know, people um, were able to see these people that were dying, right? So I think this, the numbers are, to, like, are something that are out there but people don't take the numbers personally. They just think, oh, the numbers are out there. But then when that number becomes one of their family members or you know, close um, friend, that's when those numbers really mean something to them. And I guess that's another concern right there. Yes, it goes from being a statistic to being a reality because they know somebody that's, that's had the disease. Um, unfortunately, by then they've already been exposed, right? And that person has potentially exposed others in, in their social circle and in their family. So we get exposed here to the trauma patients, the emergency medicine staff, the first responders, the intensive care unit nurses, everyone is at risk of getting exposed. And then the general population is at risk of not having as many people care for them. We've had so far, none of my colleagues have been infected, but we've had uh, fellows infected, we've had residents infected, we've had nursing staff infected, and everyone has recovered, but everyone's also been out of the hospital for two to three weeks with being on quarantine or being actually ill. So that means that the rest of us are being exposed more, right? Because we're covering those shifts. So eventually we're going to infect enough healthcare personnel that we're gonna have trouble taking care of the patient volume. We've already got with this second um, surge of cases, our medical intensive care unit and medical step down is starting to get to the numbers where they're gonna overflow. So where are they gonna overflow to? Well, they're gonna overflow into my unit. At some point, I may have to take care of some of these patients. And while as an intensivist, I'm prepared to do that and I am not worried about my personal exposure, that's diluting out the amount of care I can provide to the trauma patients. So the medical system gets strained. We end up with COVID deaths and we end up with people who don't have COVID who are gonna have longer length of stay, worse outcomes, potentially deaths, because COVID is sucking up so many resources. 
Right. And it's very concerning to see like how, like you said, we're hitting our second, second wave and um, we like uh, on the br um, brink of reaching capacity, what could happen when that capacity would be reached. Um, going back, do you think there was a specific you know, moment that you realized how severe this was and how um, long ranging the um, impact of it would be? So I saw the severity, again, not taking care of the patient, but was consulted on a patient that was in the COVID rule out unit in the emergency department. And I walked through there and I could see a patient through the, through the glass door who was breathing very hard. I went in to see my patient. I came out of the room after seeing my patient, so maybe 15 minutes later. And there was a medical team in trying to get that patient that I'd seen earlier intubated. And that patient was actively dying. He was, had gone from being short of breath to being gray and barely breathing. And the medical team is in there in their space suits trying to get that patient intubated without getting themselves exposed. And um, from what I heard, that patient went on to die. So it is real, it is fast. It can be a very overwhelmingly quick disease. It seems like it's getting more contagious and less lethal, which would make sense. If you're a virus, that's the way you're going to tend to evolve because if you kill your host, you can't spread. So it is normal for a disease to become more contagious and less lethal. That being said, we're going to have more and more patients with it. And even if it's less lethal, when it's exposing people that have immunosuppression or comorbidities who are otherwise sick, we're going to lose a lot of those patients, even with a less lethal injury, a less lethal disease, just like we do from the flu. And with this disease, we don't have vaccines and herd immunity as yet. Right. And so we could, you know, as people that are in that vulnerable group, be vectors to spread it to people that are in the vulnerable group. And um, it's interesting that you said that that contagious aspect of it is increasing. So that may cause, you know, this temporary increase in, in contagion, will um, increase in contagion that will cause a later spike in death, right? With like these patients that are being exposed that are um, more immunocompromised from people that aren't. Um, and so it's just very interesting to see like how these statistics can change over time and even just over the span of a couple of months. Um, and that kind of question is like, if, you know, the vaccine has, was started, started development, you know, earlier this, this year, if by the time it comes out, um, we're seeing these these um, changes in how the virus works, then we question the long-term validity of the vaccine and the effectiveness of it. Um, and so it's just, there's just so many concerns, I think. And what are some of your like long-term concerns regarding this vaccine or this um, pandemic? My long-term concerns are probably very similar to the rest of the public in terms of balancing safety and economics. I will tell you that the hospital system is suffering financially. We are losing personnel. We are losing personnel both for financial reasons and disease-related reasons, which makes it hard to keep the hospital running. So the hospital has to keep the lights on, the hospital has to keep the equipment clean, the hospital has to give its nurses a paycheck, and the nurses are at risk of losing their jobs. I don't think I'm at risk of losing my job, but there've already been pay cuts in other systems as the hospital loses money from both the strain of the COVID care and the decrease in the elective things that we normally do that is what keeps the, the hospital financially sound. So. 
I want to see the world opening up again. I want the waitresses and bartenders and hairdressers to have their jobs back because they need to make a living too. But I'm also really concerned about the spread of the disease and it overwhelming our ability to keep the hospital functional and killing people. The vaccine will help dramatically with that, right? If we can get everyone vaccinated, the curve should flatten dramatically, our case numbers should drop, and we should be able to get people back to work without the concern of more spread and, and killing each other. The I'm no expert on the virus. I'm no expert on the vaccine. It sounds like the vaccine, like it's a fairly stable virus and that the vaccine should be effective and that there should be relatively little drift in the, the virus itself, though that's, that's what they do, right? The virus's job is to mutate and try and circumvent whatever thing we come up with. Right. Um, and that is the concern, right? We just, I guess we just got to hope to make sure that, um, you know, we take what, like, it's the best we got, and if we don't use it, then that's just putting us at more risk. Right, and I'd say the same thing about masks and social distancing and hand washing. It's the best we've got, and it may not be perfect, just like I'm sure the vaccine isn't going to be perfect, but if everybody does their part and does their social distancing and wears their mask, that would let us open up faster and keep the curve flat. You know, I, I think overall the governor has done a really good job in this state in trying to keep the numbers down, but at the detriment of the economy, which is the only, which is the trade-off. And I think if we all did our part by complying with the CDC suggestions and regulations and laws, that it would help keep the curve down and allow the governor to open things up faster. Right. And you talked a little bit earlier about the, the challenges that health, the healthcare system has, has faced. Um, were there, do you think there were any things that like through the pandemic um, were really highlighted um, in healthcare system, like any weaknesses or um, shortcomings that were exacerbated by the pandemic? I think there are. Again, I would say overall, I think the hospital here has done a very good job of managing this pandemic, but all of us are suffering from lack of information. The data on the virus is new and unvalidated and sometimes not even good data because we don't really know things like, you know, how long does it survive on a surface? How, what is a, a necessary inoculation dose that is enough to cause infection? And people just don't know that data. In efforts to protect hospital employees, ourselves, other patients, we've had to do some degree of rationing. We've got slowdowns in how quickly things can get done because we're waiting for the test to come back on COVID patients or on unknown patients. We have slower operating systems because we have to keep our supplies separate from the patient. So when I'm operating on an emergency patient that is COVID unknown, we have to treat them as though they are a COVID positive patient in order to protect everyone. And that means I have delays getting equipment because somebody has to go get the things. We can't just have everything sitting around like we normally would, 
or all that equipment has to be thrown away at the end of the case or re-sterilized at the end of the case before it can be used on another patient. So we've got to keep the relatively limited resources in the hospital as fluid and viable as possible. And the same thing can be said for PPE equipment, which is in relatively short supply. And we haven't had a shortage here, but it's obvious the equipment is being sourced from other places. And you know the, the hat we're wearing to contain our hair is not as good as the hats used to be because we have to get what we can get and they tear more easily. And you could say that about all sorts of things. So COVID is killing COVID patients. COVID is killing non-COVID patients. COVID is exposing cracks in the system where we get by, but we're having to fake it a lot more than we used to. That's really interesting. And how you talked about rationing, the concept of, you know, having to allocate resources at the, during this time, it's, it kind of feels like kind of a militaristic um, approach that um, hospitals have had to adapt because of the short resources and because of this pandemic. How, how have you seen this, this rationing occur? And like, what kind of protocol are, are, is used to make sure that, you know, supplies, whether it be um, people, um, medical professionals or PPE or just any equipment in general, um, how have you seen that being rationed out and like what protocol does that follow? I think we've been relatively lucky in this region because with a rural environment and pretty good curve flattening policies that we have in our hospital system not been overwhelmed yet. And I'm going to put the yet in there because our numbers are, are as high now as we saw them during the first wave. Um, in other areas, like in New York and in California, they've had problems where they didn't have enough ventilators. That is not something we've run into. But we do have other things that are limited in number. Um, we can put patients on ECMO circuits, which is a heart-lung bypass when they need full support we've got a limited number of ECMO circuits. It is usually not indicated for patients with COVID because most patients with COVID who go on an ECMO circuit aren't gonna survive. But that could potentially mean that we're deciding which patients go on an ECMO circuit. If we get a onslaught of patients here like New York or California, we could be rationing who gets put on um, a ventilator. Um, we talked a little bit about this earlier before you started recording. If you are an older patient getting put on a ventilator for COVID, you're probably not going to survive. And so if I have the choice of putting a 70-year-old COVID patient or a 30-year-old trauma patient on the one ventilator I have, the choice is probably going to be for the younger patient because I'm much more likely to get them to survive. And that's a numbers game. And we've had our palliative care team talk about this. And we've had our ethics team talk about this. How do we appropriately ration a limited resource? And that all sounds really good until I remember that my husband's almost 70. And if he gets COVID and ends up in here, we may be talking about not putting my husband on a ventilator and allowing him to die because of lack of resources. And that's where you go, as you said earlier, from a statistics to a a personal uh, painful event. Infecting and um, killing anyone. And it just, we just don't have control over that. And I, I guess that's just a really scary thought. It should be a scary thought. For the folks that don't think it's real, it's apparently not a scary thought. And that's why it's 
frustrating to those of us who are potentially on the front lines when people aren't doing their part to help try and curb the spread. Definitely. Um, and so you, we talked a little bit earlier about rural. Um, what kind of challenges do you think are being faced in the rural community? Um, like I know Vidant Medical Center is responsible for a very large land area in um, rural communities. And so how has, how has that been affected? So we cover, Vidant covers essentially 29 counties of Eastern Carolina. A little bit of the Northern stuff goes to Norfolk, a little bit of the Southern stuff goes to uh, Wilmington, but most of our catchment area has very small and under-resourced hospitals out there. So they are unable to keep the majority of patients. They are also suffering from the financial problems that COVID has wrought. They are also suffering from their staff getting sick and having limited staff. So we get to a point where the um, medical center is actually full most of the time. Now, this is not uncommon during the summer because trauma is busy. It's not uncommon during the winter because there's a lot of flu cases, but we're now seeing it at times when we wouldn't normally see it. We are at most of the time 100% plus bed capacity. So let's say you're out in the region and you have something that needs to come here, whether it's trauma or surgery or a heart attack or a stroke, you will have limitations into who's accepted. So trauma patient with a broken leg, we may defer them and say, you have to stay in the region and have that orthopedist look after you. Is that dangerous? Probably not. But if you're a multi-system trauma and somebody misses something because that's not what they're trained for, that could be bad. Um, if you are coming here because you're having something that needs to come to the main center, you may be stuck in the hallway in the emergency department for 48 hours because there are no beds to put patients in. And we know from studies that if you're supposed to be in an ICU, being stuck in the emergency department results in worse outcomes. The emergency department's not set up to take care of ICU patients. So there's delays throughout the hospital stay. There's delays getting seen in the emergency department. There's delays getting your imaging done. There's delays getting your labs done. There's delays getting into a hospital bed because of all of the other patients that are here. Again, some of them COVID, some of them not COVID, but we have floors shut down because we don't have enough nursing staff because some of them are out with diseases like COVID and quarantine and because some of them have been laid off because the hospital doesn't have the financial resources when we're shut down to elective surgery. And it, it's just fascinating to see like how multifaceted this is, right? Like you're talking about how it's affecting elective surgery, how it's affecting, you know, who we give resources to, um, it's affecting long-term, like it just, there's so many aspects of just to think about. I feel, I feel like there's a, um, you know, you could study like anything regarding this and it would be affected in some way. Um, and just to close out, do you have any other thoughts of um, how that is happening? Like any other fields that you're seeing is, are being affected by this, um, whether you've seen that personally or something you've seen recently? Well, I think in the hospital, everyone's affected um, from top to bottom. You know, the housekeeping staff have to do extra cleanings than they used to do. So we need more housekeepers, but we don't necessarily have more housekeepers. The folks in dietary may be doing less because if we have fewer patients in the hospital, there's fewer trays to prepare. So some of those folks may be getting uh, laid off. 
the physical plant is harder to fix when the light bulbs need changing in somebody's room when are you supposed to do it if there's a patient in the room 24 seven because the rooms are never empty. So it gets really hard to run a hospital at this level of capacity at all levels. And we, again, we said this is a, a team sport. We need our housekeepers to keep the place sanitized. We need them to change the sheets. Um, they say an army runs on its belly and I would say a hospital's the same. We rely on the folks that don't get uh, credit in the TV dramas to actually keep the place running. Right, and that's, yeah, it's very, I'm very, like, it's very interesting that you're bringing that up because like you said, it's not seen um, by people or appreciated um, by, you know, people that aren't necessarily in the hospital. It's a very important thing to bring up. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Gutler. Uh, thank you so much for your time on the show. Um, I really appreciate all that your insight that you provided. Um, and thank you so much. It's been my pleasure and tell everybody wear their mask, whether they believe in it or not. Definitely. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation and thank you so much for listening. If you love Mitzvectives, be sure to follow us on Spotify, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this podcast with your friends. It really helps us grow and I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much and I'll see you next Monday.